O blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, we are in Matthew today, chapter 13, beginning at verse 24, and we're going to go ahead and read through verse 43, so if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. And Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him here. We said last week when we came to this 13th chapter of Matthew that we witness a bit of a shift in Jesus' strategy in terms of teaching. Up to this point, he's been giving what we would probably call a formal sermon or a formal address. But when you get to the 13th chapter of Matthew, Jesus begins to teach the crowds exclusively in parables. Now, he teaches the disciples in other ways, but when it comes to the crowds, he's focusing almost exclusively on parables. Now, in one sense, that's not surprising to us because the parables are one of those features of Jesus' ministry that we are all so familiar with. But in another sense, it's very surprising because we don't encounter the parables until we're halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. 
You would have thought that we encountered them earlier. But we talked about why that was the case. We said that up to this point, uh, the crowds had been indifferent. But now there is this growing hostility, especially on the part of the Jewish religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus feels it necessary to continue to teach, but to teach in such a way that those who are spiritually minded, who have ears, spiritual ears to hear, can actually understand what he's talking about, but those who are his enemies and are plotting against him will not understand. Uh, this is what is meant by verses 14 and 15. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So this was a deliberate tactic on Jesus' part in terms of teaching the crowds. This growing hostility on the part of the leaders. It is a reminder to us, at the very least, that nothing good ever comes into the world without opposition. Now, if you've ever been engaged in a good cause, doesn't matter how good or noble the cause may be, you know this to be true. There is always opposition. And if that is true in the smaller things in life, are we surprised that there is opposition when it comes to something as important, as ultimately significant as the kingdom of God? Well, that's Jesus' whole point here in this next parable that he tells. The first parable dealt with the origin of the kingdom of God. A sower went out to sow seed. The seed represented what? Represented the gospel message. The sower was the what? The preacher, in this case, Jesus himself. And the soil represented what? people's hearts, us. Remember, with the parables, the whole point is that you are to find yourself in the parable. That's how you read a parable. You have to figure out, where do I fit in to this story? So that parable was about the beginning of the kingdom. That's how the kingdom starts. It starts with the proclamation of the word. It is thrown out liberally. Some of the time it falls on good soil, sometimes on bad soil, but that's how it works. I don't want to press this too far, but at the very least, it does suggest to us that most of the time when the gospel is preached, it doesn't fall on good soil. You know, Jesus gave us four different types of soil, and only in one-fourth of the cases does the seed actually take root and grow and produce fruit. So we shouldn't be surprised if we're out there trying to share the good news, live the Christian life, and we find that the majority of people or the majority of the culture rejects us. Jesus said that sort of thing is to be expected. But as I said, it's not just a matter of indifference. Oftentimes it's a matter of active opposition. And that's what Jesus talks about in this parable that comes next. This parable of the weeds, as it is sometimes referred to here, or the parable of the wheat and the tares is the traditional uh, way it was described. And as I said, what it means is that there is opposition. Jesus says there was a farmer. Remember, parables were always taken from real-life experiences. This would have been a scene that was very familiar to the people of Jesus' day. He said, a farmer went out and he sowed seed in his field. We talked about what that looked like last week. But while the farmer was asleep, we're told, an enemy. It's very important that Jesus calls this person an enemy. Somebody who is opposed to the farmer goes out and sows weeds among the wheat. They find out about it. Somebody must have been talking about it, presumably. And the workers in the field come to the farmer, the owner of this land, and they say to him, 
this is what an enemy has done. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to go out and tear up the weeds? And the master says, no, because you cannot tell the difference between them. In tearing up the weeds, you may, in the process, tear up the weed as well. There is a type of plant that grows in Palestine that was common in this day and age. It's called bearded darnel. And in its youthful stage, it looks very similar to wheat. Now, it's not the same. It actually has a very bitter taste. It's actually somewhat toxic. Uh, it has a narcotic uh, effect. And so it's, it's something that is dangerous. And that's why the enemy has sown this among the wheat. So if you eat it, you can actually become sick. And that's why the people wanted to tear it up. But Jesus says you can't tell the difference between them. You have to wait until what? Until they reach maturity. And once they reach maturity, you will be able to distinguish between the legitimate wheat and this destructive or poisonous bearded darnel. So that's the idea here. So Jesus says you have to wait until the harvest. Then you'll be able to tell the difference and say, then we can go out and we can tear up the wheat and tear up the weeds and separate one from the other. There are a number of lessons that we can draw from this parable. As I said, most of the parables only have one or two lessons. Some of them have a few more. Let's say they have one or two lessons, but they have multiple levels of application, and I think that's the case with this particular parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. First of all, we should expect opposition to the gospel message. Jesus was not surprised by that. You and I should not be surprised by it either. I've often said that it's one of the strange ironies of the Christian message that the one who came into this world to be the Prince of Peace actually brought division wherever he went. Did you ever notice that? Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. We say that every Christmas when we read from the prophet Isaiah. And yet Jesus himself made it very clear that he had not come to bring peace to the world, peace in terms of an absence of conflict, but what he'd really come to bring is division. He makes it very clear it is the inevitable result of the preaching of the gospel. Uh, turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 10. We looked at these passages some weeks ago, but Jesus says this, beginning at verse 34, He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, if you think about it, those are shocking words. He said, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will ever surely find it. Why did Jesus bring division? Well, that's what light always does, my friends. That's how Jesus described himself in John's gospel. He said, I am the light of the world. Well, what does light do but bring division, doesn't it? It separates the day from the night. I've often said, why is it? that light is something that, um, 
Well, let's put it this way. If you're having a romantic dinner, how many of you want to have a romantic dinner sitting under fluorescent lights? <laughs> Why is it that if it's a romantic dinner with somebody that you love, you always like candlelight? I'll tell you why, because everybody looks better in candlelight. <laughs> you, you turn on the fluorescence and what? You see every crack, every flaw, every blemish. And so what do we do? We, we shy away from the bright light, don't we? Why is it that most of the crimes take place not in broad daylight? We're always shocked if a crime takes place in broad daylight. Most crimes take place what? At night. It's interesting. I was um, closing up the house um, about a year ago, my neighbors will be anxious about this, but I was um, turning off the lights on the second floor and I happened to look out the window and I saw a man coming down the street and checking every car door as he came down the street, looking to break in. He's doing that, what? Under the cover of darkness. He would never think about doing that in broad daylight. Why? Because he would be exposed. Well, that's what light does, doesn't it? It exposes things. It shows our cracks, our flaws, our blemishes. It exposes those deeds that otherwise would be done at night. If you hear somebody that sounds like an intruder, what's the first thing you do at night? You turn on the light. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring light into the world. But when you begin to cast the light, what you begin to do is you begin to expose things. And let's be honest, most of us don't like to be exposed, do we? Most of the time we would prefer to hide our faults and our flaws. So one of the reasons Jesus brings division and one of the reasons why people were oftentimes opposed to him, particularly the religious leaders, is because he came to bring division, because he is the light. I put up there on the screen a parable of the overturned board. That's my parable, not Jesus' parable. Imagine, if you will, a board. If you go out into a field and you see an old log or you see a board lying there on the ground, and it's been there for some time, and you pick it up, you're already shuddering down here in the front row here, but you turn over that board, what's the first thing that's going to happen? Well, the light is going to hit the area that had not been exposed, and what are you going to see? you're going to see all kinds of creepy crawlies going for what? Going for cover because they've been hit by the light. The other thing you're going to see is that the grass underneath that log or underneath that board is what? Matted down. It's white. It's sickly. See, that's what light does. But here's something else that light does that's very interesting. Light has a warming effect. It not only exposes, it can actually heal. If you leave that board turned over long enough or that log kicked over, what will happen to that grass under the warming effect of the light? It will eventually turn, won't it? It will come back to life. It will grow healthy again. You go back in a few days and that which was white and sickly suddenly has turned green and flourishing. That is what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. He came to expose our sins, but then to put us under the tender light of His loving care in such a way that we who were sick, sin-sick, and sorrow-worn might be healed. Well, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. But for some people, they never get to the part about being healed. They just don't like to be exposed. 
That's what Jesus did with the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were always trying to trick him up, always trying to discredit him. And in the process of doing that, they found themselves, in the words of Shakespeare, hoist on their own petard. It happened over and over again. It is a dangerous thing to play poker with Jesus. And that's what they did, and they inevitably lost. So you understand that if we are going to be light in the world, if we're going to expose the works and the, we, the, works and the, the words of darkness, and if we are going to bring the, the loving, searching light of Jesus Christ to the world, there will be opposition. It is inevitable. If Jesus came not to bring peace but to bring a sword, if Jesus, by just virtue of who he was, brought division to families, you need to understand that we are going to face precisely the same thing as the followers of Jesus Christ. We should not expect anything less. So that's the first thing we need to understand. There will be opposition, my friends. In fact, if you are not facing opposition, the chances are you're probably not really living a truly legitimate Christian life because it is the result. Second thing that this parable teaches us is that there is not just indifference in the world, there is active opposition. That is to say there is an enemy. That's the language I said that Jesus uses here. An enemy has done this. As Christians, we need to understand that our struggle is not just against the world. Actually, the scripture says our struggle is against three things. It is against the world, the culture out there. It is against the flesh, because oftentimes we struggle within ourselves. I don't know about you, but I certainly struggle within myself. The very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. How many of you can relate to that? That's why Paul cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? So we struggle against the world, the culture out there that is indifferent and unbelieving. We struggle within ourselves, and we struggle, the Bible says, against the devil. Against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we live in a skeptical age, and many people don't want to believe that the devil actually exists. Part of the reason for that is we have these sort of far-fetched images of the devil. When we think of the devil, we don't really think of a fallen angel, what do we think of? We think of as this sort of comical character dressed in red leotards with a pitchfork and, you know, horns. And we think to ourselves, well, who in the world can believe in something like that? Well, if you're in C.S. Lewis's or Brian's class on C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters, you know very well that this is part of the devil's strategy. Paint himself in such a comic light that anytime he's engaged in some sort of nefarious activity, what do we do? Well, we blame it on somebody or something else. That's his way to operate in a clandestine manner. Paul made this point very clear. Keep your fingers there in Matthew and turn to Ephesians for just a moment. It's a familiar passage. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I'm in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly 
places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Paul is very clear. Our struggle is against the devil. Think about Jesus' own ministry. Jesus' public ministry began with his baptism in the Jordan River. He goes down into the river. He formally associates us with us in our brokenness and our fallenness, though he's nothing like us. And when he comes up out of the water, what happens? There's a coronation ceremony that takes place. The heaven is torn open. The spirit descends like a dove. A voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. I mean, it's a marvelous, the high point of Jesus' life, earthly life, up to that point. And what happens next? He's driven out into the wilderness where for 40 days he's tempted by the devil. So we need to understand that if we're going to live the Christian life, Jesus' point in this parable is there's going to be opposition. And the opposition is going to be active opposition. There is an enemy out there. But still our ancient foe, Martin Luther says, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Now I don't say any of this, and Jesus didn't say any of this in an effort to frighten us. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's the idea behind this. So we need to understand that there is an enemy. And the enemy wants to disrupt. That has been his plan from the beginning. He wants to disrupt God's great plan of salvation. The devil is sometimes described as the great disruptor. He wants to throw a monkey wrench into the works. Now, I like to point out to people that when it comes to God's plan of salvation, when it comes to the advance of the kingdom of God, this is not God's plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. You know, sometimes what we think of is that God created the world, the world was perfect, and all of that, and, and, and what happened was human beings rebelled against God and, and ruined everything, and all of a sudden God is left scratching his head and saying, now what am I going to do about that? And so... He sort of washes his hands of plan A, and he moves on to plan B, and plan B is, I'm going to send my son. Actually, that is not plan B. That is plan A. God did create the world. He created it good. But he knew, even before he created us, by giving us free will, we were probably going to use it against him. He knew that. And so even before we had sinned, this is the amazing thing, God set in motion the plan, the means by which you and I would be redeemed. This is why the book of Revelation describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain when? Well, not in 33 AD on a green hill outside the city walls, the hymn says. Jesus was crucified, the lamb, when? Before the foundations of the earth. But ever since that point, ever since that first preaching of the gospel in the Garden of Eden, where God said that the woman would crush the serpent's heel. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's heel, but the serpent would bruise him. He would, rather, the, the woman's child would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise his heel. Ever since that first preaching of the gospel, what theologians call the proto-euangelion, from that moment, the devil has been doing nothing but trying to disrupt God's plan and carry as many people as possible away into destruction. And how does he do that? How does he attempt to disrupt God's plan? Well, that's here in the parable as well. 
The enemy's strategy, as Jesus says in this parable, is to sow weeds among the wheat. His plan to disrupt God's purpose in history, in salvation, is to infiltrate the ranks. It is to plant his own people in our midst. This teaches us what theologians refer to as the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Every Sunday during the creed, we say that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does the word Catholic mean there? It means universal, that's right. It doesn't have anything to do with the Roman church. The word Catholic means universal. And what it means is that the true church is made up of all kinds of Christians. There are Anglicans there. There are Baptists there. You don't like the Baptists? You better start liking them, because you're going to spend eternity with Baptists, singing their hymns, probably. There are Lutherans there. There are Methodists there. There are Roman Catholics there. There are Greeks there. There are all kinds of people from every language, tribe, and nation, all those who have been redeemed by the Lamb. That's what we mean by the Catholic church. And that's what's called the invisible church. But there is something that is known as the visible church. Now, the visible church is what we see gathered on a weekly basis in our church buildings. That's the visible church. But the point is that within that visible church, there is another church, the invisible church. Jesus' whole point is you can't assume that just because somebody shows up for worship on Sunday, that automatically means that they are truly a part of the invisible church, the church that really matters, the church of those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. People go to church for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they go out of a sense of habit. Sometimes they go out of a sense of guilt. That's often the case on Mother's Day, by the way. I'll just tell you right now. That's one of the big Sundays in the year, and it's Mother's Day. Why do so many people show up on Mother's Day? Because mom says, it's my day, and this is what I want for my day. I want the whole family to go to church. How many of you have ever been there? Okay. So we acknowledge the fact that people go to church for a whole host of reasons. Not necessarily because... They long to be there, or they want to be there, or they're there to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Okay? So we recognize there's a distinction. That's what theologians call the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Sown in among those who show up on a weekly basis are those who may be churched, but listen to this, they are not converted. And every denomination has them. Every denomination has them. So that's one of the things we need to be alerted to. That the enemy's plan is to infiltrate our ranks and to sow among those who are the true believers, those who are not believers. Now, part of the problem here, of course, is that you don't recognize the difference, do you? That's the whole point of the parable. Well... Well, you want us to go out there and tear up the weeds? No, you can't tear up the weeds because at this point, the weeds and the wheat look what? The same. You cannot tell them until they reach a point of maturity. It's only at the harvest that the distinction is told between those who were legitimate and those who were illegitimate. 
So that's part of this parable as well. That's why in his first epistle, John spoke about those who had originally been with them, that is to be with the fellowship, but then they went out from among us, he said, because they were not really a part of us. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians spoke of false apostles, those who initially had the appearance of being the followers of Jesus Christ, but as time went by, their works and their gospel showed that they were really not the true followers of the Lord. We need to realize that in every denomination, every church, there are weeds sown among the wheat. Now that's what the parable is teaching. Here's something else that follows. If that is the case, if that's the enemy's plan to infiltrate our ranks, then we should be alert to the enemy's plan. One of the reasons why I encourage you to bring your Bibles, and one of the reasons I pray that prayer, that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest thy word, is because, my friends, it's only by a knowledge of the Scriptures that you will ever be able to distinguish between the wheat and the tares. That's the only way. This is the standard by which we judge that which is a true teaching, that which is a false teaching, that which is a legitimate gospel, and that which is false. That's why Paul said to Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting, the Greek word that Paul uses there to Timothy when he talks about guarding the good deposit, guarding the gospel, the Greek word is philoso, and it literally means to guard it actively. It's the idea of a sentry standing up there on a tower watching for the approach of the enemy. See, if you're vigilant, if you're watching for the approach of the enemy, you're not going to be surprised when the enemy tries to come. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to infiltrate your ranks when what? When the sentry's asleep. So as Christians, we have to be vigilant, we have to be watching, we have to be ready, we have to expect that the enemy will come, and we have to be ready for him when he does. It's also true that when the enemy does infiltrate our ranks, and we recognize it, this is why church discipline, my friends, is so very important. Church discipline is absolutely important. Now, we don't like to think about discipline. And I think one of the problems that we face in our 21st century culture, particularly with the younger generation, is that they are not accustomed to discipline. And part of the reason for that is when we hear discipline, we think punishment. But let me tell you something. Discipline and punishment are not the same things. Discipline is designed, it may be painful, but it is designed to do what? Build up, to strengthen to encourage, to prepare you. You all know that I came from a marine town. I spent 17 years in Beaufort, South Carolina, where they train young men to be Marines. And I had a dear friend who was the chief of staff, second in command at Paris Island, and he took me one night out there to see the recruits when they arrived. And let me tell you something, it was terrifying. It was terrifying for them, and it was terrifying for me. Because you see these kids come and they're in their baggy shorts and they're coming with their 
T-shirts, you know, with their Metallica T-shirts, and they've got their earbuds in, and, you know, they're, they're, they've got their long, shaggy hair. And all of a sudden, before they knew it, for the first time perhaps in their entire lives, there is this man that's about three times their size up on that bus and shouting in their face as close as you can possibly imagine, spit going all over their faces. And he's telling them to get off the bus, and they have to come out in the middle of the night, and they're standing on these little footprints, and he's screaming and yelling, and they go, in there and they get their heads shaved and everything is taken away from them. And let me tell you something, after about two weeks of that, if you were to go up to a young recruit and say, are you being punished? Oh, yes. You want to get out of here? Oh, yes. Let me tell you something, they would swim through a pond full of alligators to escape. And some try. They will do whatever they can to get out of here. There's a colonel back there from the Marine Corps laughing at this because he thinks it's funny, but it's not funny. I'm telling you, they are terrified. And for weeks, it seems like torture. But what's happening? They're being disciplined. They're being shaped. They're being honed. They're being transformed into men who will be able to go out and defend their country and survive. And if you come to the end of that period, you go back for graduation at Paris Island, and you see those young men standing out there on the tarmac ready to receive the Eagle Globe and anchor let me tell you something. You asked them, was it all worth it? They're going to tell you it was absolutely all worth it. Now that's discipline. That's not punishment. That's discipline. They're transformed into something better than what they were. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Hebrews for just a moment, to the right. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning at verse 5, the author writes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we know that the enemy is going to try to infiltrate our ranks and we see that there are people who are being led astray within our ranks, it is the responsibility of the church to discipline its own. That is to say, to pull them back in line. Have you ever noticed that when a bishop walks in procession in the church, he carries a staff? It's a hook. We call it a crozier, but it's really a shepherd's what? Shepherd's staff. Why does it have a hook on the end? The purpose is to pull the sheep back in line, isn't it? And if necessary, to knock the sheep back in line, lest they wander astray and get lost. When the church fails to discipline its people or its leaders, not punish, we have to be careful about this, but if the church fails to discipline its own, what happens is that you allow them to wander astray to their own peril and destruction. 
One of the saddest cases that I know of in the history of our tradition is the case of Bishop Pike. I don't know how many of you remember Bishop Pike. Everybody remembers Bishop Spong. But before Bishop Spong and all the things that he denied, there was Bishop Pike way back in the 1960s. And Bishop Pike was really a sad figure. He had been a very successful lawyer, high-powered corporate lawyer, who decided to enter the ministry. So he gave up law for grace, is the way I put it. And he decided to go into the ministry, and he was very charming, very intelligent, and very effective. He became the dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. He wrote a whole series of books for the church teaching series. He was a remarkable individual in many ways. What many people didn't know, however, was that his family life was an absolute wreck. And uh, things began to happen. He got elected Bishop of California, and he was already beginning to teach some things that were a little strange, just a little fuzzy around the edges, but most of the people in the church sort of looked the other way because he was so charming and so effective. But he began to question things like the virginal conception of Jesus. He began to doubt whether the resurrection really was a physical, bodily resurrection. Perhaps he said the spirit of Jesus simply rose in the hearts of his disciples. Well, he got elected Bishop of California, and he went out to California, very high-profile position in San Francisco. He took his family out there. This was the height of the 60s. His children got engaged in all kinds of drug activity out there at Berkeley, and one of his sons took his own life. And the bishop was absolutely devastated by that. And because he had really begun to question all of these things, and nobody in the church had sort of pulled him back in line, they sort of looked the other way, what happened was he began to hold seances in the Episcopal residence trying to contact his dead son. And it went downhill from there. All of a sudden he was denying everything. He didn't believe in the Trinity anymore. The Trinity doesn't exist. It's just some sort of cultural relic. He denied the virginal conception outright. He said that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. In fact, he didn't even believe that Jesus really was the Son of God, except in the sense that we are all sons and daughters of God. Well, before long, he had nothing left to believe in. He retired as Bishop of California, and his family, as I said, was an absolute wreck. Marriage was on the rocks, didn't know what to do. So he decided to take a trip to the Holy Land to hopefully find something with which to believe in again. And he wandered off into the wilderness. He and his wife rented a car. They drove down into the Judean wilderness. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been there, down in the area near Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And as they were traveling down there, their car ran out of gas. And there was this day before cell phones and that sort of thing. This is a barren um, desert place. He got out of the car to go look for gasoline, go looking for help, and he never came back. They eventually found him. He had fallen down into a wadi, down into a dry gulch, and he had died there, alone. And I think, what a, what a tragic story, that perhaps if the church had cared enough for its own and called him back, perhaps if the church had disciplined its own, that might never have happened. See, we have a tendency to think, oh, we don't want to discipline anybody because we don't want to break their spirit. And so what we do is we allow them to wander off to their own destruction. Well, if we know that that's what the enemy is going to try to do, part of the important things that we have to be serious about as the church is we have to be willing to discipline our own. Not with the purpose of punishing them, 
Punishment's not the idea here. The idea is to bring them back in line. So that's one of the implications of this parable. Jesus is making it very clear. The enemy is going to try to infiltrate our ranks. He's going to try to sow weeds among the wheat. We need to be ready for that. If we know that it's going to happen, we need to be vigilant. If we see it happening, we have an obligation to those who are experiencing it to discipline them, to call them back in line, gently, lovingly, in the hopes that they might repent and return to the Lord. Here's something else that follows. The mixed state of the church is no excuse not to join it. You know, that's one of the things that you'll hear from people when you're a, a preacher. They'll say to you, well, I don't go to church because the church is just filled with hypocrites. And, and I, I don't, I don't want to go to a, a church that is filled with hypocrites. Well, let me just say something to you about the church and hypocrites. It's always been that way. This, this is nothing new. Jesus prophesied that it was going to be that way. There would be weeds among the wheat. The church is going to be filled with hypocrites. And let me tell you something, that's good news for you and me. Because when you're standing in judgment of somebody else as a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> Martin Luther said, we are simul ustus et peccator. It means at the same time, justified and yet sinners. How many of you would claim to be a Christian today? How many of you still sin? Well, welcome. See, the door is open for you. One of my favorite heroes is uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher. They called him the Prince of the Preachers in London in the 19th century. Uh, he was an amazing man. He would literally preach to thousands in an age before amplification. He didn't have any one of these mics or anything like that, but he could preach. He, had a, he just had this trumpet-sounding voice. He was an extraordinary individual. Uh, even the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Benjamin Disraeli, who was a Jew, nevertheless came to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon. They were just in awe of this man. Well, one day Spurgeon was greeting people in the receiving line at the end of the church and this couple came up to him and they said, well, Mr. Spurgeon, we have very much enjoyed being in your church and we've been blessed by your ministry, but we have decided that we are leaving. When a pastor hears that, they inevitably want to know why. Well, you know, why are you leaving? And they said, well, we're leaving because this church we have discovered has hypocrites in it. <laughs> and they said, so we are going off looking for a more perfect church. And Spurgeon, in an age when they were a little bolder than we are today, said to them, well, when you get there, will you do me just one favor? And they said, of course. And he said, don't join it. And they said, well, why? And he said, because if you join it, you'll ruin it. Listen, there's no such thing as a perfect church, my friends. You're not going to find it. You can skip around. You can leave St. Philip's and go to St. Michael's. You can leave St. Michael's and go to the cathedral. You can leave the cathedral and go over to St. James. You can go wherever you want, but I'm going to tell you one thing. You are not going to find a perfect church. Jesus makes it very clear there is no such perfect church because there's no such thing as a perfect person. It just isn't. The church isn't a country club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So it's no excuse not to become a part of the church simply because it's filled with weeds. Here's the final lesson. A day of revelation is coming. We may not be able to tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat today, 
There are people that are in the church that are upstanding citizens, but you don't know whether they have a true and lively faith or not. But a day of revelation is coming. A day of separation is coming. Jesus says there will come a harvest when what will happen? When they will gather up the wheat and the wheats and they will separate the two. And the wheat will be gathered into the barn and the weeds will be what? They will be burned with an unquenchable fire. He said, he who has ears, let him hear. This is a picture of the church. Now here's the question, where do you fit in? Are you wheat or are you weeds? You say, well, how do I know? Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their works, the fruit of the Spirit. Are you manifesting those things that the Spirit alone can manifest in your life? The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control? Are those things becoming more and more prevalent in your life? But a harvest is coming, my friends. A separation will take place. That is what Jesus is saying. And that's why Peter, in his second epistle, said, you need to make your calling and election sure. You know, the church is filled with hypocrites, and most of us are. You know what the word hypocrite means in Greek? It means to wear a mask. It comes from the realm of Greek plays, the great plays that would take place in Greek culture, tragedies and comedies, and what would happen? The actors would come onto the stage, and if it was a tragedy, they wore a tragic mask. If it was a comedy, they wore a comic mask. The reality is most of us, let's be honest, wear masks in our lives so that nobody really knows what we're really like. But there is one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and there's one from whom no secrets are hid. And what he's calling us to do is to take off the mask. The Greek is anupokritos, without a mask. Take off the mask and admit what we really are and come to him who is the savior of the world and receive his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness and be transformed into that which is truly, truly holy. That's what this parable is all about. I said to you last week, the parables are simple, but they are not simplistic. <laughs> last week we had to ask the question, what kind of a heart do I have? Am I hard-hearted like that hard path? Is my heart like the rocky soil? It doesn't really have any depth. The word comes. And I show that initial excitement, but eventually when difficulty or privation comes in my life, I sort of wither off and die. Am I like that soil that what is crowded out by the thorns and the thistles, the things of this world? Or is my heart like fertile soil? It's taken root, the gospel, and it is bringing forth fruit. Well, Jesus asked the question today, are you on the enemy's side or are you on the Lord's side? What is interesting is there's no middle ground here. You're either all in or you're all out. That's the power of this parable. And that's the question that only you can answer. The minister can't answer it for you. I look at you and you all look pretty good to me. <laughs> only you can answer that in your own heart. But that's the question that Jesus is asking. Well, there's one more parable or set of parables in this section. 
And that's the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. The one we just talked about is the easiest to understand. It's easy to understand because Jesus explains it. That's what you have in verses 36 and following. But there is this other parable sandwiched in between the initial telling and the explanation, and it's the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Let's just go ahead and read these verses again. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. First parable, the parable of the sower is about what? The origins of the kingdom. The second parable, the parable of the weeds, is about the opposition to the kingdom. These two parables are about the eventual growth and triumph of the kingdom. Jesus' point is that it's going to face opposition, but nevertheless, the word of the Lord will prosper. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever. That should be very encouraging to us. First of all, this parable teaches that the kingdom may start out small. Jesus said it starts out as a mustard seed, but it grows into a great bush in which the birds come and take their nest. It starts out like yeast, but you work the yeast, and what does it do? It eventually goes through the whole batch of dough. Jesus says that's the way the kingdom works. It may start out small, but it can grow. It can grow until it fills the whole earth. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, the time is coming when the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, here at home, in Judea and Samaria, and finally what? To the ends of the earth. These are two kingdoms about the growth of the kingdom. And I love the fact that the kingdom starts small. You know, sometimes when we think about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, we think to ourselves, that is an overwhelming task. But Jesus took 12 men, 12 ordinary men, and he changed the world. What could God do with a congregation like St. Philip's if we were really, truly dedicated? Could he not fill the earth and change the world? Paul said this, writing to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians were not perfect people by any means. In fact, the Corinthians were really Paul's problem children. But just turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because there's a very encouraging section here. Paul's writing to this church, and here's what he says to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verses 26 and following. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. It may only start out as a little mustard seed that you plant in somebody's heart, in your child's heart, in your grandchild's heart, in your neighbor's heart, that the Holy Spirit, by His power, begins to warm with the light of God's love and waters with the nourishing fruit of His grace 
And what inevitably happens is that it begins to grow until it triumphs. My friends, what that means is that even if we are facing opposition in the church today, we are still on the winning side. Our job is to do what? Throw out the seed liberally. That's your job if you're a Christian. You're to be the sower. You're to throw out the seed liberally. Your job is not to worry about where it falls. Your job is to throw it out. Your job is to be faithful, not successful. God's business is success. Your job is faithfulness. So our job is to throw out the seed liberally. Will there be opposition? You better believe there'll be opposition. There's always opposition to any good endeavor, especially to the kingdom of God. And the enemy will come and try to sow weeds among the wheat. Nevertheless, our job is to be faithful. If we see it happening and we should be watching for it, if we see it happening, what should we do? We should discipline those in love that they might come back, return to the Lord, and find forgiveness and grace. But even if it sometimes seems as though the enemy's winning, that there are more weeds than there are wheat, Take heart, because in the end, that which starts out small. And you may think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not a great theologian. I can't speak the way that the rector speaks. It doesn't matter. God takes the shameful things of this world, the things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. He can use you to plant the seed that will eventually take root, at least in somebody's heart, and grow until it fills the whole earth. We actually have, and I'll close on this, a real-life example of this in the Scriptures. It's in Acts chapter 13. I describe Acts chapter 13. Some of you were here on the study on Acts, but it was so long ago you probably don't remember this section. In Acts chapter 13, you know the story. It's the beginning of the missionary era. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out. They have traveled down the coast from Antioch where they started off to a place called Seleucia. They've taken a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus. They've preached around the Isle of Cyprus, and they've gone back up to the continent, and they've traveled to a city called Pisidian Antioch. And that's where we pick up the narrative. We're told on the Sabbath they went, as was their custom, into the synagogue, and they were invited to preach the word. And they preached the word, and people were absolutely enthralled. Absolutely enthralled by the message. They'd never heard anything like this. You can see a little bit of their initial excitement in verse 42. Acts chapter 13, verse 42 is where we're going to pick up the narrative. And as they went out, this is Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. There's that initial excitement. The seed fell either on rocky soil or on good soil, but at the very least there's an initial excitement there. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. What happens the next week? The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Why were they jealous? Now, I can tell you why they're jealous. Preacher stands up week after week, pours his heart out, preaching the word, and the people remain indifferent. He brings in a guest preacher, and the whole 
congregation comes out of the woodwork. And what happens? The preacher, the rector, gets jealous. That's what happened with these people. They were, they were jealous. My goodness, we, we run services here every week, and nobody shows up. And then all of a sudden, we get these two guys from off, and they show up, and they share a message. And before you know it, the whole city is there to listen to the word. And what's more, somebody's sitting in my pew. And that really irritates me. And what does the jealousy do? We're told that they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Just a few days before, they were begging him to come back and say more about this. Now they're reviling him. Weeds among the wheat. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Verse 49 is the critical verse, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now right there is a summation of what we've been talking about in these parables. The kingdom starts off small. Paul and Barnabas go into an area, they share the good news. Some of that seed falls on what? Good soil, some of it falls on bad soil. I want you to understand, this is the pattern for gospel ministry. You go into an area and you preach the gospel, you are bringing light, it will divide. There will be division. On the part of those who do not accept the message, there will be what? Opposition. They reviled Paul. But while some reviled him, what? Some did believe, accepted the word eagerly, and glorified God. And in the end, what happened? The word of the Lord spread. The time may come when you and I are chained, literally, for the gospel. That was true for Paul, but I want you to know something. The word of the Lord is never chained. No matter what, no matter how many weeds infiltrate among the wheat, the word of the Lord will prevail. The kingdom of God will triumph. And you and I are on the winning side. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these parables. They are powerful to us. We know that there is opposition out there in the world to the kingdom of God, and it can be very discouraging, especially when we see problems within the church itself. But help us to recognize the fact that we are sinners as well. Help us to repent of our sins and come home to you, the bishop and shepherd of our souls. And then use us, though we may not be great people, we may not be the most educated people. We may not be the most influential people in the world. Nevertheless, you can use us. You use the shameful things, the despised things, the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. So use us, Lord, we pray. Make us a vigilant people, a people who are willing to suffer the loss of all things except the loss of you. That the kingdom of God may spread to the ends of the earth. That Jesus Christ might be lifted up. That he might draw all men to himself. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.